the glory of Jesus. So we, we need to know really clearly what a disciple is from God's word so we can know if we are one and if we are making them. Um, the definition we're working with, the one we're trying to own and develop together as a church, is this one. And there's, there's a bunch of great ways to define or describe what a disciple is. So this is not the only one, but this is going to be ours. A disciple of Jesus is a person who abides. They stay with Jesus. This word stays is not only a synonym of the word abide, but it's also an acronym that we're using to help us to remember the, the different elements of what a disciple is. So we, we take the S of stays. S, a disciple surrenders to Jesus. T, a disciple is transformed and changed by Jesus continuously. A, a disciple abides with Jesus. They make their life with Jesus. The letter Y, today's sermon, a, a disciple yields to the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And finally, the final S, a disciple serves in community. Today's, today's letter, as I just pointed out, is this letter Y, a disciple of Jesus yields to the Holy Spirit in their everyday life. Now, I just, I'm going to be drawing not only from John, but the book of Romans. I, I consider the book of Romans the best book of the Bible, and I consider Romans chapter 8 the best chapter in the best book of the Bible. And Romans chapter 8 is perhaps one of the richest, most dense passages in the Bible, the entire word of God regarding the Holy Spirit. So if you want to learn something about the Holy Spirit, that's where you go. So there's, there's going to be plenty of preaching today, but underneath it is what I'm going to consider teaching as well, all right? So preaching is louder and longer and sweatier, all right? It has all this authority, but teaching, uh, in the very least, simply deploys some information. So, so really, there's going to be some, some teaching under this, some deep, hopefully robust, rich, thick theology. So I hope those of you who are studiers, uh, note-takers, writers, I hope your hand is, uh, is all limbered up so you can take some notes. So my first question is, if we're going to yield to the Holy Spirit, we need to know who he is. So who is the Holy Spirit? Quite simply, the Holy Spirit is the, what we consider the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We have one God, and he is one in three persons. The Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the Helper. In other places, he's referred to as the Comforter. And something I want to make sure that we as a people are very clear on is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it that Christians believe in, but the Holy Spirit is the, a person of God whom we love and we worship and we obey. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, it's taught clearly and it's put on display by Peter when, when a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they have some land and they want to look good in front of this new church. So they say that they sold the land and gave all the proceeds to the church, but they kept some of the money back. And, and Peter asks them about that and, and, and they lie about it. And in that moment, Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit of God kills them like right on the spot. So don't lie to your pastors. That's just, just not a good idea, okay? And, and Peter says, listen, you didn't just simply lie to me, a man. You lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God. You lied to God. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Now, what is his particular or unique ministry, right? God serves humanity as a loving, gracious, kind God. And, and each person of the Trinity has generally a, a primary unique ministry that the others include themselves in and participate in. So what is the Holy Spirit's particular and unique ministry as God to us? 
I just want to run you through some of the things the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit does. One, the Holy Spirit brings life, and he preserves and keeps life going. Like all living creatures, God gives the Holy Spirit to, in, in, simply, in simple terms, simply to make it alive and to keep that thing living. Right? And, and the Holy Spirit as well is responsible for bringing supernatural spiritual life, specifically to those who God has appointed to salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings you into the new life that you have as a Christian. He also directs our attention toward Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's, for the Holy Spirit, the big E on the eye chart, the billboard that he wants to point to is Jesus Christ. He, he's doing everything he can to get human beings' eyes, our minds and our hearts, focused on Jesus Christ in order to build some sort of craving for the satisfaction and the goodness that Jesus is and has. He reveals and he conforms Christians' thoughts and hearts to Jesus' thoughts and feelings. He transforms and conforms our feelings and thoughts to be more like Jesus's. And he brings us as we need it. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 9 says, he brings to us as we need it, he brings us the emotional, mental, and spiritual faith that it takes to obey what Jesus says to do. And as well in Romans chapter 8, and you can go look at this verses 12 through 17, he brings us comfort. The Holy Spirit brings peace of mind. He brings rest for our souls. He brings, he brings courage. And he's telling us and reminding us that we are who Jesus says we are, that we are no matter what, no matter what, we are children of God. We are co-inheritors of all that the Father gives to Jesus. We, we are co-inheritors with Jesus. We are God's children. He doesn't neglect us. He doesn't forget us. He'll never reject us. He'll always be there for us. He loves us. These are some of the major things that the Holy Spirit loves to do, and he does not fail to do what he wants to do. So this, this main point today, a disciple of Jesus yields to the Holy Spirit in their everyday life. What's that mean to yield? I really do want you to think of um, traffic. I want you to think when you're driving and you see a yield sign, you're coming up, someone else has the right of way. They get to go first. You've got to wait on them, all right? So in the traffic of your life, the traffic of your thoughts, the traffic of your emotions, the traffic of your desires, the traffic of your plans, the, the road that you believe you ought to or want to travel, a Christian is, is, is a disciple of Jesus who yields to the pace car, the lead car of the Holy Spirit. And so where, where I want to go faster, he's gonna, he might need to slow me down. And if I want to move slowly, he might be, be wanting for me to speed up. If I want to go that way, he might be going, no, you need to yield to me and follow me. I have the right of way, and you come, come with me, right? What does it mean to yield to the Holy Spirit ultimately? And I'm going to say this a bunch of times today. Ultimately, it means to believe what the Spirit of God tells us regarding Jesus, and it means to try to obey what Jesus has commanded that's yielding to the Holy Spirit. It means to abide. It means to stick with and commit. It means like real effort to read and listen to and know God's book, God's word, the Bible, which, by the way, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is the writer of. 
So we have, on the foundational practical level, we have human authors who wrote the Bible and God employed them. But the superseding, superior, governing author of the scriptures is the Holy Spirit. And it means, for us to yield, means to Romans chapter 8, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and the things of the Spirit are revealed in God's Word. It means to stay, to abide, to commit to prayer, private, public, corporate, with, for, over other people, continuously asking the Holy Spirit for help. To yield to the Spirit means to, to try to obey Jesus' commands. And where we don't obey, yielding to the Spirit means confessing and repenting of that sin. It means when we don't do what God says we ought to do, and when we do what God says we ought not to do, yielding to the Holy Spirit means we trust that what Jesus says about our sin and turning back to him He'll receive us with grace and mercy. He'll forgive us. He'll restore us. It means we even obey that. It means to abide in fellowship with others who are striving to yield with the Spirit and fighting for one another's yielding to the Spirit, trying to help clear the road of our life traffic with one another to follow and listen to and obey God. Yielding to the Spirit means trying to discern in your everyday life what the Spirit of God, listen, has already revealed in the Scriptures. And then simply trying to apply it to the circumstances and scenarios of your everyday life. Now, what does it look like when someone's yielding to the Spirit? What's the effect on a disciple who is yielded to the Spirit? You can look in Galatians chapter 5, the the famous passage in Scripture in the New Testament where it lists the fruit of the Spirit. What, What grows up out of a person who has the Holy Spirit and is yielding and submitting to the Spirit of God, there's spiritual fruit. Hope, peace, love, humility, kindness, mercy, mercy, generosity. Things in your character start to grow fruit of those things. Uh, what else shows up in a person's life when they're yielded to the Spirit is good works. Good works. Like, as they obey the word of Jesus in his scriptures... They start to do the kind of works that Jesus does. They start to say the kind of words that Jesus does for the help and for the love and for the good of the people around them. Someone who is yielded to the Holy Spirit, here's what you see, here's what they should see, is ongoing and growing understanding of the scriptures. Because as they read the Bible, they learn more and more. And they never stop learning. The Lord just keeps on showing them things. There's ongoing and growing more and more mature repentance. A person who's yielded to the Holy Spirit isn't a person who is so good and they're getting more and more moral that they don't have to repent and turn back to Jesus as much. No, a mature Christian yielded and and submitting to the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit of God, they're getting really good at repenting. they're, They're getting to become an expert. It means ongoing and growing enjoyment and love for Jesus. For Jesus. A growing and ongoing love for his purposes, for his ways, for his people. It means ongoing and growing spiritual fruit. It means ongoing and growing faith in Jesus' promises. And it means ongoing and growing obedience. Obedience that is more and more and more finely tuned 
to Jesus' commands. Again, you can, you can find that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. I'm going to make a lot of references. Galatians 5, 25. Now, like in the first sermon, like surrendering to Jesus, yielding to the Spirit takes effort. It really does. I, I'm never going to get tired of this. For Christians, God is not opposed to our effort. We are to work. We are to strive. We are to fight. We are to struggle. We are to wrestle to obey, to trust and obey and follow Jesus. God's not opposed to our effort. He is opposed to our trying to earn his love and earn his approval through obedience. But it's, it's difficult. It's an ongoing fight. It's an ongoing practice. And I want you to know that Satan and the systems of the world and even your own flesh, your own fallen sinful nature, they're going, to, they're, they're going to continuously fight against you as you try to yield to, try to listen to, trust, and yield to the Spirit of God. See, you're, you're not simply born into this world. You're born into a war. You're not simply born into a world. You're born into a war. And Jesus, as we just heard Jen read from John, he promises the Holy Spirit will live in us and stay with us so that we can know that our God is with us, fighting for us every day. Another point I, I want to draw up, up, up about the, uh, the Holy Spirit is that if you're not surrendered to Christ, you can't yield to the Holy Spirit. If you're not surrendered to Jesus, then you can't yield to the Holy Spirit. And I'm not just making junk up. I, like, I'm, I'm trying to pull stuff from the Bible. Romans chapter 8 is like, like kindergarten level plain about it. Romans chapter 8 Verse 9 says, you, if you're a Christian, you're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. You're yielding to the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, really does live in you. But anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. You're not a Christian. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian, then Romans 8, 7, and 8, the verses right before that, they say, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, who do not have the spirit of Christ, those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. Even if they are obeying God's moral laws to a superior level than you, and you're a Christian, their obedience to God's moral law doesn't please him because they don't have his spirit. They don't love him. They don't understand him. They don't want him. So the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, let me sum up and cap that together for us. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the glory of Jesus to us. That's his primary thing. And why is he doing that? So that we would depend on him above all else. He's, he's going to continuously show us our need for faith in Jesus. He does it so that we will enjoy Jesus above all other people and things, which produces and empowers faith in Jesus as we actively live our lives. And then he reveals the glory of Jesus to us so that we desire to please and honor him above all else. He's revealing Jesus to Christians so that we would be empowered and drawn into accomplishing Jesus' work in this world. And he does it through us and for the faith of other people. So I want to look at verse 15 of our passage today from from the Gospel of John. Jesus, what does Jesus say? say? He, he actually, he kind of repeats this and recapitulates this. You, uh, hopefully you saw this strand repeated 
through the passage that Jen read, which is this. If you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. He's, he's giving a clear marker. This is how you know who loves me. This is how you know who loves me. Those who love Jesus are identified by their obedience. If you love Jesus, you'll be convinced that his commandments, you'll be convinced that his commands lead to the most desirable way of your life. You'll be convinced that his design for humanity, his design for the world, is good, that it's righteous and it's wise, that there, it's so good and perfect that there's no other way. You can't even count any other way. And he says then in verse 16, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper. He'll give you the Holy Spirit to be with you how long? Forever, he says. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Why? Because it neither sees him nor knows him, because they don't have him and they don't want him. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the, the helper. The Greek word is paraclete, if you want to <laughs> be a nerd like me, but it's, it's the word paraclete. And he's given to us. He's the spirit of truth. The names that God gives to himself really indicate a lot of things for us, like all the multiplicity and the diversity of what God does and who he is for us. So Jesus says that the spirit, the Holy Spirit is unknowable. And everything that he teaches is unknowable to everyone. Everyone except to those whom God sends the Holy Spirit. More on that, more on that in a second. He continues on in verse 17. So he says, you know him. Why? Because the same thing he's, God says in Romans chapter 8. Because he dwells with you. And he's going to be in you. He's going to live with you. The spirit of Christ really does dwell with you, so you're not in the flesh. And you know him now. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip to verse 26 of this passage. Jesus says a whole bunch of stuff, including, again, several times. He says, those who love me are the ones who they obey my commandments. In verse 26, he says, but this helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that what? I have said to you. The Spirit of God dwells with you and in you. He is the person of God sent to live with you in place of Jesus' personal, physical, spiritual presence with you. Jesus tells them in this final dinner lesson that he's having with his disciples, he goes, listen, I have to go away. And if I don't go away, then you won't have the Holy Spirit. And you need the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit of truth, Jesus says that he teaches, the Spirit teaches all the things that Jesus teaches. And he's going he's to remind you of all the things that Jesus teaches, the truth. He's going to teach you God's will as you need it. What is it that the Spirit teaches and reminds us of? Again, you can go to Romans chapter 8 for a lot of this, but Jesus says here in verse 18, he goes, listen, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I promise I'm going to come back. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And how will you know that I am with you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you? Because I sent my Spirit, my Spirit to you. So what is the Spirit teaching us, reminding us of? One, he says, he's going to teach you and remind you over and over again that God is with you. His Spirit is with you. 
He's assuring you that you're not orphans, that you've not been abandoned by your father and your older brother, King Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 8. The Spirit is going to teach and remind us that Jesus is going to return and that we will see him. He's teaching us that Romans chapter 21 and 22 is the ultimate target. That's the bullseye on the, the span of all of universal history, past, present, and into the future. God with man. That, behold, the dwelling place of God is now fully and totally and finally and perfectly with man. And he is their God, and they're going to be his people forever. Nothing's ever going to change that. Nothing's ever going to get in the way or distract from that ever again. And the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us that. He's going to teach us that because Jesus and his Father are one, then he joins with us and will never be separated from God's love. That's Romans chapter 8, 38 through 39. The Holy Spirit is the one who's assuring you that no matter what anyone does to sin against you and any way that someone defiles you and, and covers you in filth and in any way to any extent that you do that to yourself or others, that if you are in Christ, the Spirit is promising you that nothing, not even Satan, can remove you out of God's love through Jesus. And he's going to teach us in John 16, 13 through 15, that when the Spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into what truth? All the truth. He's not going to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So I want you to understand, the Holy Spirit of God has not, will not, and will never give any private, unique, specific, secret, special knowledge, truth, or command that hasn't already been revealed and jives with what Jesus has said. So you can go ahead and tell whoever it is that goes, I heard from the Spirit and he said you should. You can tell that person, hey, why don't you write it down? I'm going to pray about it. Okay, I'm going to pray about it. And then you can take that paper and I just, you have my permission as your pastor, at least my counsel. You just, hmm, yeah. Okay, whatever, all right? Especially if it does not jive with what Jesus has already said. He will glorify me because he's going to take what is mine, the truth, the gospel, and he's going to declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Why? Because I'm his son. I'm his heir. And therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, and he's going to declare it to you. So those, those who have been given the Holy Spirit, they're going to be taught, and they, they're going to be reminded over and over again of Jesus' glories, his guarantees, his promises, his ways, his design, his goals, going to receive his guidance. Chapter 15, verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I'll love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, verse 23, if you love me, you'll keep my word, and my father will love you, and he'll come to you, and he's going to make his home. He's going to make our home with you. How? By sending the Holy Spirit to live with your heart, mind, soul, Whoever does not love me doesn't keep my words. And the word that you hear isn't mine, but the Father's who sent me. And it is, it is Jesus because, well, the Father has given it to him. Those to whom the Spirit has come, they're going to have Jesus revealed to them, to them and they're going to love who they see. If someone has the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come to them, 
And they're now going to love who the Spirit shows them. They're going to love Jesus. The Spirit will make his home with you in your heart, mind, and soul. And, and the path of life that Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you teach me the path of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This path of life is God's will, and it's the Holy Spirit who's going to teach you what Jesus says. And he's going to help you trust and obey what Jesus says. God's will is path for life. So again, I'm going to cap this, all right? I'm going to cap this to get into the next section here, okay? The Holy Spirit, again, he reveals the glory of Jesus Christ so that we depend on him above everyone and everything else. He reveals the glory of Jesus so that we enjoy Jesus above anyone or anything else. And he reveals the glory of Jesus to us so we desire, so we want to please and honor him above all else by obeying him by showing the world around us that we believe his way is best. And how do you know if you've yielded to the Holy Spirit? Because you love Jesus. Because the Spirit has shown you, and now you know who he is, you know what he's like, you know what he's done, you know what he's promised, you know what he's commanded, and you love him for it all. You see, a Christian, a person who obeys the Spirit, isn't a person who obeys God's moral law because they're afraid of going to hell. That's not a Christian. And a Christian isn't a person who obeys God's moral law and what he teaches because he's afraid of ticking God off all the time and thinking that if he can do enough obedience that God will then love him and approve of him and then he gets to go to heaven. Now, a a Christian is a person who yields to the Holy Spirit and they love Jesus and they obey him because they love his ways. They see he's right. They're convinced. It means that you'll trust and you'll obey his commands because You're convinced they're good for you. Therefore, here's the key. Therefore, you'll know and you will do God's will. Now, this is where this sermon takes, maybe for some of us, uh, uh, like a surprising turn. This is an area of the Bible, of God's word, of theology that, men, we need to take a long look at and begin to get our heads and hearts wrapped around this. To start wrestling with this, this question, what is God's will? What is God's will? The, the Bible speaks in two general categories. When, God, when the Bible talks about God's will, there's two general categories that God's word is talking about. The first one is the sovereign will of God. That's what we're going to call it, the sovereign will of God. This is, this is the sovereign plan of God that he what, will bring about. He's going to bring it about. Now, the sovereign will of God is often concealed because when we get to trying to think about and learning and discerning what God's sovereign will is, what he's going to do, often that's concerning our future. But also, plenty of the time, specifically in the scriptures, God reveals his sovereign will ahead of time, something he's going to do. Here's what I mean. God will bring a Messiah. Boom, it happens. God Abraham will have a son. The Israelites will be liberated. Christ will return. Satan will be defeated. God will dwell with his people forever. There's no changing it. It is his decreed plan, and he will bring it about. No ifs, ands, or buts. Now, I want to I point out, it's, it's really crucial. It's supremely crucial that we understand that God's sovereign will includes and incorporates the sinful will 
and the sinful acts of human beings. God's sovereign will includes his decree over the sinful will of human beings. You can see it in Acts chapter 4. We're going to talk about it in a second where, where Peter talks about what God's appointed plan was regarding Herod, the governor who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. You can see it in Genesis chapter 50, the end of the story of Joseph in the land of Egypt where his brothers sinned greatly against him. I can't tell the whole story. You can go read the book of Genesis. But Genesis 50, he finally meets up with his brothers and they deserve to die. And they're worried that he's going to kill them because he'd be right to do so. And he goes, listen, what you meant, what you meant, what you wanted to do, what you, you did what you wanted to do. No one made you. But what you intended, what you did for evil, uh, God has a superior will. And he used your willing acts. He appointed your willing acts to bring about his greater will, which is to put me in a position to be salvation for Egypt and the world. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter teaches clearly that there are times in which God appoints, in which he decrees that human beings will sin against Christians and cause their suffering. Jesus appoints it. He has decreed it that you will suffer if you love Jesus. And he's appointed sinful human beings to bring that suffering to you in persecution. I want you to, I really want you to start working because it, it might take some time. But I want you to understand, this doesn't make God evil. This doesn't make God evil for decreeing that sinful men sin. God, I'll, I'll give you this analogy and I'll just try to do it quick. See, the idea that God would decree and appoint that sinful people do what he doesn't want them to do then tempts us to think that he's evil. But listen, if you read Harry Potter, have you read Harry Potter? Right? Voldemort's a bad guy. Right? He's, he's the worst. He's evil. Does he do evil? Yes. Does Voldemort want to do evil? Yeah. He wants to do what he wants to do. And do we blame the author J.K. Rowling for being evil, having come up with and developed and written into the story an evil person? No. She's not evil for doing that. She's not evil for it. God is the author of all creation. Instead, what this assures us is that though human beings willfully, I'm going to say volitionally, voluntarily, from the heart of what they want, no one's making them. They want to do it. It reassures us that though men willfully sin against God and his people, God's appointed, decreed, sovereign will supersedes their intended purposes and acts. He uses their inferior will and action for our good and for his glory. God's will is superior to men's. It's sovereign. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says that even a king, like think of the greatest person, human being that you can think of, even a king, even a king, his will has to submit to God's plan, whether he knows it or not. So a king can come up with whatever plans from whatever heart and motivation he wants, but even God's will is superior to his. So God decrees that sinful people do what they sinfully desire. He appoints them to it. He employs their volitional evil for his superior purposes. So the murder of Christ is sin. The murder of Christ is sin. It's the most wicked act ever committed in the universe. And who does Peter, who does the Bible say appointed that to be done? 
God. Because God is sovereign over Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and Judas. And they wanted to kill Jesus. God didn't have to make them want to. They wanted to. God appointed this so that his greatest decree would come about, that Christ would die for the sins of his people and and reveal the mystery of his gospel. So the sovereign will of God is his complete and utter control over all things, over all people, over all times, over all places, over all activities and circumstances. Matthew 10, not not one sparrow, not one bird falls from the sky unless it's what? Under the will of God the Father. Every roll of the dice in Vegas and Reno and Monte Carlo, every result on the computer screen as people in your local gas station are pulling the one-armed bandit, right? The result of chance, it's not chance because it's under the sovereign will of God. That's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. There's no, there's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as accident or coincidence. God's sovereign will, it can't be broken, it can't be averted, it can't be thwarted, it always comes to pass, and it's his sovereign will. Daniel 4, 35, he does everything according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one, Daniel says, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What are you thinking? That's what it means to be sovereign. It doesn't just mean get to do whatever you want to do. But it also means that no one in the universe, if you're sovereign, it means no one else has the wisdom or the power or the authority or the right to question you and say, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's just. No one gets to shake their fist or point their finger at God and accuse him that he was nothing, there was anything less than perfectly wise, perfectly just, perfectly good. But then there's the second category of God's will. And we're going to call it God's will of command. This will of God is what he commands us to do. And he's revealed it clearly and plainly in his word, written by his spirit and illuminated to us by his spirit. This is God's will. You might call it God's desired will. It's what he wants and here's, here's, here's how it's particularly different than God's sovereign will, is that man can disobey his will. We can choose. We can willfully, volitionally choose to disobey him and not do his will. God's sovereign will is something you can't disobey. Even in your attempt as you disobey his command will, even in your attempt to disobey his will, <laughs> We're going to find ourselves cooperating with his sovereign will, even with our disobedience. That's, that should bring you reassurance and satisfaction when it comes to tyrants like Pharaoh, who enslaves and murders God's people. He's disobeying God's command, my, command will. Let my people go. Who is this God that I should obey him? I'm going to do what I want. And God's sovereign will is therefore accomplished with Pharaoh's hardened heart and disobedience as God raises him up to power in order to crush him and show his strength on behalf of his people. But the will of command, well, we can fail to do that. And what, where is his will of command revealed? What's well, revealed well, in his commandments? The will of command is revealed in all of his commandments. The Ten Commandments, 
the first and second greatest commandments, every instruction, every admonition and warning that you find from God in the scriptures, that's where he's revealing his will. Abstain from sexual immorality. Love your wife in tenderness. Respect your husband. Don't provoke your children. Outdo one another in honor. Don't get drunk. Tell the truth. Submit to the governing authorities, even godless sinful authorities. Give generously to the poor. Protect, protect the low and the undefended and the vulnerable and the outsider and the people who are different than you. Protect and serve them, befriend them. Seek their good. Work diligently, live humbly. Give thanks to God in everything. God's will being revealed. That's God's will. Matthew chapter 7, which by the way is one of the most disturbing, scary passages in the Bible for me. He says there are going to be a whole bunch of people who show up on the last day when I'm holding judgment. They go, Lord, Lord, hey, we, we preach in your name, we taught in your name, we healed, we healed people, we cast out demons, we did miracles in your name. And he's going to go, I don't know you. You said you believed in me and you did stuff in my name, but you don't love me. You didn't have my spirit. Only those who... Only those who enter in his kingdom are, in Matthew 7, 21, are going to be the people who do the will of my Father. These people cast out demons. Doesn't, doesn't God want demons cast out? These people perform miraculous healings. Doesn't Jesus want to heal people? Yeah. But again, they, they were in the flesh. They can't please God. They don't love Jesus. They did it for themselves. They did it for money. They did it for fame and power. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, God says that the will of God is that you be sanctified. What does that mean? That you would love Jesus and trust that his ways are right. You would obey his ways, and you'd be more and more like him. That's God's will. You want to know God's will? That's God's will. One chapter later, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the will of God is that you'd be grateful to God. That you'd be grateful that you'd love him, you'd honor him in all circumstances. And what's the evidence of that love? Your obedience. Because you, you trusted him and you did what he said. You yielded to him and you preferred his way and his design rather than your own way, your own plan, your own design. What's Jesus say about those who love him, those who belong to him? You'll know who they are because they obey his commands. He doesn't love them because they obey. They obey because they've been loved by him. They've, the Holy Spirit's revealed how good he is and they love him and now they obey. They love him, even though, just like all human beings, they're born not loving him, incapable of loving him. That's Romans 8. That's Romans 3. Go read Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. No one wants him. No one knows him. No one cares. Everyone seeks their own way. Everyone's got their own desires, their own way of thinking, their own right, their own right and wrong, their own good and bad. No one's born caring and wanting to know what God thinks and then do it. No one's born that way. But those who obey Jesus' commands, they do it because they love him, because they first were loved by him. And that's only possible because the Holy Spirit of John chapter 3, go read that. The Holy Spirit of John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to this teacher named Nicodemus, he goes, you want to enter my kingdom? You're going to be born again. And that, just like your regular birth, that's something that gets done to you. That's not something you have a hand in. That's, that's, you got born, and you get supernaturally reborn. And that's done by the Holy Spirit, who Jesus says he blows and goes wherever he chooses to when he wants to. And when he comes to you, now he gives you 
new eyes to see, new ears to hear, a new heart that wants to and can and will love Jesus. And they're going to enjoy obeying him. So a disciple of Jesus yields to the Holy Spirit. They do and live the will of God in their lives. So you've got God's sovereign will. You have God's command will. So considering that we're talking about the Holy Spirit today, I want to I do you a favor. I want to fight for your joy. Get it out of your heads. Get it out of your heads that listening to, yielding, obeying to, living according to the Spirit means a series of irrational, unexpected decisions that you base on experiential or emotional spooky feelings that lead to spooky occurrences. Get that out of your head. Get it out of your head that yielding to the Holy Spirit means you're constantly receiving unique messages or impressions from him that reveals God's specific and normally concealed sovereign will. Get out of your head that that is the normalized experience of a Christian who truly has the Holy Spirit and is yielding to him and walking in the Spirit's power. What it actually looks like is that the Spirit is revealing Jesus to you more and more clearly, more and more powerfully, and he's wakening up more and more day by day, more and more loving you for Jesus. It means the Spirit is revealing and clarifying for you more and more all that what Jesus has already taught. He's going to come to you and teach you all these truths, and he's going to remind you. And when it's time for you to testify, he'll bring it back up in your mind so you'll have what you need. It means the Spirit... The Spirit will be your guide in your everyday life. And it means he is guiding you as you try to what? Obey the command will of God. See, I want to assure you, if you love Jesus so much that you'll obey what he said and trust his mind and trust his heart behind his every command, trust me, you're going to seem plenty crazy and faith-filled, and supernaturally powerful, and spooky enough. You'll seem plenty spooky enough. You won't find yourself wanting for a testimony of crazy circumstances and unbelievable supernatural outcomes that can only be explained by God. You won't be wanting for it if you find yourself having Jesus revealed to you more and more by the Holy Spirit, and it increases your love and increases your faith, and therefore leads to just obeying Jesus in your everyday life and what he's already taught Listen, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Should we, should we believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit through miraculous signs and wonders? Prophecy, healing, vision, speaking in tongues? I'm convicted that we ought to. I see no reason from the scriptures to believe that the Holy Spirit stopped doing the things he likes to do that point to Jesus. In fact, I'm convinced that we ought to. That we ought to pray that he would do such things in us and amongst us. But miracles and signs and wonders, do you know why the Spirit does those things? To point to Jesus and show that he's real and he's powerful and he really is who he says he is and he's active. That's why signs and wonders occur. That's why the Spirit produces those things. God doesn't want us to neglect simple childlike faith in him and simple childlike obedience to him, so also that we can focus on more seemingly impressive and astounding and even entertaining miraculous signs and wonders of the Spirit. Because every time you see Jesus ask for signs and wonders by people 
in the scriptures, in the gospels, you see them either harshly or in the very least gently rebuked or redirected. Do another trick. You just healed that guy. Heal that guy. He's like, heal another person. I forgave that dude I healed his sins. I forgave his sins. What? You, want, you want me to top that? I forgave his sins. He's alive now. He's going to live forever. You saw it happen right in front of you. Didn't you see it? In short, it means that as a born-again child of God, someone who loves and trusts and obeys what the Spirit of God is teaching you about the Son of God in the Word of God, you'll know and you'll do and live the Word of God, the will of God. See, listen, I want to address, because I, I might not have gotten really far enough in this whole God's will thing and trusting the Holy Spirit. Because, listen, there, there, the craving... The craving to know the concealed future sovereign will of God in your life is a relatively new thing in Christianity. The early church fathers, the earliest Christians, the church historically up until around the, around the 16, 17, 1800s, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, until then, the church, like, there are no writings, there are no books, there are no sermons recorded in the vast majority of church history where pastors and theologians are teaching Christians on how to discern the will of God and decide how, who I'm going to marry or what I'm going to do for a living or should I get that car or should I move here, retire early, work a little longer, right? The church Christians didn't think like that at all when it came to the will of God for over a thousand years. This is modern. It's new. Many people, if not most Christians today, when, when, we say, when, when you say that you want God to show you, show you his will for your, your life, here's what's at work. God, I want you to give me a map. Give me the map. I want you to reveal what you plan to do with me. Would you show me, before you do it, where you plan to take me, what you plan to make of me, what you plan to give me, what you plan to take from me? God, give me guidance. Now, that sounds pretty good. I'm, I'm just going to say that I don't see anything wrong with that. But what gets revealed in that desire all too often is that I want the guidance, but I don't want the guide. God, I don't need you to go with me. I just need you to give me the map. You stay put. Take a load off. Rest your feet. You've been working. You've been working real hard since eternity to begin, right? Basically, you want God to hand you the map so that once you see his path and plan for you, you can start incorporating your plans too. You can start seeing some pullover places, some other trails that as long as I'm heading in the right direction that God is showing me, I don't really have to go on this. I don't have to go through this. I don't have to suffer that. I can kind of go around it. See, hey, God, God I, I've seen your ways map and trajectory. Like, I've got some improvements. I've got some thoughts. I want you to remember who the Holy Spirit is and what he does he brings guidance to the Christian in their everyday life because he is the guide who goes with you. Jesus promises that he goes with you, that he lives with you. So listen, God isn't interested in giving you guidance so you can head on out with him. You'll never go to the places and you'll never do the things that he wants you to do if, you sh if he showed it to you ahead of time. You'll never, you won't. Please don't lie to yourself in your head right now. Please just shut that person up, shut that liar up. John chapter 28, 18, by God's sovereign de decree, 
Jesus shows his concealed and now revealed sovereign will for Peter's life. He says, Peter, when you're old, someone else is gonna take you by the hand and take you where you don't wanna go. And that's gonna happen. The whole book of Jonah is about what happens when a man gets a look at the map and the destination. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. Jonah tries to disobey God's sovereign will. He rejects the guide. He tears up the map. And he runs the opposite direction. That's what we do. That's what we're going to tend to do if God shows us all of the secret concealed things about his sovereign will in your personal life. And he doesn't want to do that to you because you'll run away from him. You'll get hurt. You'll get, I don't know. You'll get swallowed by a big fish. I don't know. Or worse. No. There's a, there's a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Um, her husband, Jim Elliot, was a, was a missionary who wanted to bring Jesus and the gospel to a South American tribe so badly that he was killed for it. She was widowed, and she loved Jesus. Didn't just love Jesus, but loved Jesus for that. Isn't that absurd? Does that sound crazy? Here's what she says. What, a, what is good, it's generally assumed, ought to make us feel good. For example, if it's the will of God, then I'm going to feel good about it. I, I, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure this is God's will. I feel good about this, right? She says, but that's not always the case. Jonah had no good feelings about going to Nineveh. And I had no good, she's, the rest of her life, through books and testimonies, she, I had no good feelings about sending my husband to a murderous tribe but it was God's will. Now, God's interested in you going with him step by step. He's revealing his sovereign will to you as you obey his command will every day. You'll, you'll get there. The sovereign, concealed future plans of God in your life, you'll get there. You walk with Jesus and obey him in his command will. By the work of the Holy Spirit, teaching us to love Jesus and all that he loves, teaching us to obey his commands. Now, that's going to transform a person. That's going to change a person. But if you want the guidance without the guide, if you want to know God's sovereign will without trusting and obeying his command will, then you don't want the Holy Spirit to transform you. You don't want transformation. You want God to give you a crystal ball so that you can do pagan divination. The disciple knows how to live in the concealed will of God. They know how to live and trust God in his concealed will as he reveals it step by step because they're even more familiar with the already revealed will of God, which is Jesus and his teaching and his truth. And that's because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. Two final thoughts, and I'll do my best to be quick. Yielding to the Spirit, obeying the command will of God won't always lead to easy or happy, or prosperous, or pleasurable, or painless circumstances. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. It got him murdered. John the baptizer, the greatest man born of a woman, according to Jesus, he obeyed the will of God really, really, really well, and it got him murdered. One of the first deacons, and a really great preacher, Stephen, he obeyed the will of God, and it got him, what? Murdered. Same for Peter, James, Andrew, Paul. John was tortured. They tried to boil him alive and kill him. Didn't work. So they exiled him to an island far away from his family and friends and church and those he loved. 
It's the same for thousands and thousands and thousands, untold thousands of Christians who love Jesus so much because they had found a supernatural spirit-given desire to obey him, even to the point that their own homes and their possessions were taken from them. They suffered imprisonment, public shame, even murder in the Colosseum or on the crosses of their own. Same for thousands of Christians over the century who, who conquered him, Satan the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. William Tyndale, Margaret Pohl, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, Edith Stein, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Corey Tenboom, Jim Elliott. One thing she says I am sure of, one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story for his people never ends with ashes. And that's the sovereign will of God. As you yield to his spirit, under his good command will for your life. Yielding with the Spirit means praying and asking the Spirit to show you Jesus and give you faith in him. It means reading and striving to write God's word on your heart and mind. It means trusting and obeying in faith that the Spirit gives you. Trusting and obeying the words and the commands and the ways of Jesus that he reveals to you through the word of his Spirit, the Bible. The disciple of Jesus yields to the Holy Spirit in every day. That's what, that's what we are. That's, that's what we do if the Spirit of Christ is with us. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would, you would make it plain to us that your Spirit is at work among us today, that you are teaching us. You are revealing Jesus to us, Spirit. And I pray that you make it plain Flex your muscles, demonstrate your power for our good, for our joy, and for the glory of Jesus. Teach us and remind us what you've already taught us so we can trust you and obey you and find joy in flourishing so that we strengthen one another and, and those who do not have your spirit and those who do not know you, they might have, they might have Jesus revealed to them. Use us, use us, Lord in this way, for your glory, for the joy of the nations, we pray. Amen. Love you guys.